Okay, so we are continuing on in our study of James this morning. And we come to James chapter 1, verse 19 to 25. The first theme that we came to in James was the theme of trials. Um, how they're sent by God for our growth and maturity, how God is ready to help us and give us wisdom and perspective in the midst of our trials when we ask Him, and finally how we must not blame God when we react sinfully to those trials. Well, it could be that the theme of trials continues on in our passage this morning. But that's not entirely clear. There's all kinds of different opinions about the structure of James because it's not really that clear. It could be that, that uh, James has trials in mind because blaming God is not the only wrong way to respond to trials. People also get angry. They complain and grumble. They get selfish and they think only about themselves. They speak unkindly. They don't listen to others and they especially don't listen to God and to his word. Sometimes they go on vulgar and profane tirades God invites us to come to him and ask for wisdom in the midst of trials, but sometimes that's the last thing we feel like doing in our trials. We don't really want to hear what God has to say. We just do want to do what we want to do. And so perhaps that's what James has in mind as he goes through this next section about these things. But whether or not that's the case there is much here for us whether we're in trials or whether we're not so let's read James 1 19 to 25 know this my beloved brethren or my beloved brothers let every person be quick to hear slow to speak slow to anger For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, He is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So let's just walk our way through James 1. 19 to 25. It begins with, know this, my beloved brothers. This passage really contains the first sort of hard things that James wants to say to his readers. The first things that could offend. And so he begins by reminding them 
where he's coming from. My beloved brothers. He's reminding them that he loves them and that he's speaking what he's going to say in love for them. And that's always important. It helps us to remember when we read God's word that he said these things in love. And it helps other people when we remind them of our love for them before we say something that might be hard for them to hear. But he goes on to say, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak. Now there are people who love this verse because they're the kind of people that just like to be quiet and let everybody else talk. And they, this is one verse they cling to. I'm good, so good at this. I'm quick to listen and slow to speak. But of course, for many of the rest of us, we are filled with things we want to tell others, preoccupied with our own thoughts and our own lives, as if the things which happen to me are more important than the things that happen to everybody else. And it's something that we need to hear, calling us to be quick to hear and slow to speak. And there's really, that's two different things. First of all, to restrain our talking. As the Proverbs remind us over and over again, to be in control of our tongues, to hold back, to just uh, think about what we're going to say before we say it, and be careful about talking too much. But it's also calling us to become an active listener a pursuer of other people and what their thoughts are and what their experiences and their stories are. Uh, it's, a, it's a key to building close friendships. And it's a key to ministry. A lot of people think that ministry is just telling others about what you know. But you usually can't get into another person's heart just by talking to them and telling them what you know. Find out who they are. Find out what they've been through. And then you can minister to them the, the thing that maybe they need to hear instead of the thing that's on your mind for them to hear. And then he continues this. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, be, and slow to anger. And then he adds to that, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Be slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, in all the contexts that God puts us in, there are ways to promote righteousness. And one of those ways that seems to be most effective in restraining chaos, at least, is anger. It's not that it's always wrong to be angry or to express anger. Ephesians 4.26 tells us, be angry and sin not. But James calls us to be very careful about this, as does the rest of the scripture. Sinful anger comes very naturally to us. And it's always counterproductive. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Sadly, I had to learn this lesson 
the hard way, especially as a father. Uh, When you have 11 children, it's very easy for chaos to reign. And sometimes the only tool it seems that works is anger. But it's, trust me, it's counterproductive. And you've got to find a better way to resist chaos than anger. The best tools, by the way, this is just a footnote, the best tools for parenting are the fruits of the Spirit. That's where we should be focusing on our parenting skills. And if you're interested in a great book on parenting, How Children Raise Parents is a great book. I've just read and and, uh, maybe the best one I ever read. So if you're looking for a good book on that, there it is. So he follows this discussion about anger with, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. In other words, it seems the two are connected. In light of the fact that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God, therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. In other words, it makes, to me at least, it makes the most sense that when James says put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, he's primarily referring to putting away the kind of filthy and wicked speech which is often associated with anger. This word filthy, you know, this word has a lot of connotations to it. Um, Especially when it's referred to language, doesn't it? Uh, But the Greek word here, it, it means dirty, just like, you know, you have a dirty shoes, but but it's not just ordinary dirtiness, it's dirtiness that's kind of extreme, like it's actually dirtiness to the point of being disgusting. And so what word are they supposed to put here? Filthy is the good word for that, isn't it? It's like, this is filthy. This isn't just dirty, it's filthy. And so that, whatever it is he's talking about, and it seems to me, since I believe it's primarily talking about language, that he is talking about filthy language, what we would refer to as coarse, foul language, um, which sadly is a frequent occurrence, but really has no place in the life of a Christian. And there are two problems with it. One, it harms your witness. When you see a person who claims to be living for Jesus and then uses filthy or wicked language, he, it just smacks of hypocrisy. And people aren't going to listen to you, either believers or non-believers. They're not going to listen to you in the same way. Because it, it's like, at least the interpretation is, the perception is, they've just shown us who they really are inside by, by what just came out of their mouth. And that's... The other problem is that it is a reflection of what's in the heart. That's what Jesus said. You know, it's from the heart that things come out of your mouth. And uh, people who are ruled by love don't have filthy, wicked language coming out of their mouths. Now, 
I'm not talking about a certain set of words which should be avoided. It's a lot broader than that. It's not that there are certain words which are filthy and we should avoid saying those. Rather, we should avoid any kind of speech which is considered filthy or wicked. All of our speech, as we're told elsewhere, should be born of love. For instance, you hear someone refer to another person as a scumbag. Well, that's not considered, at least in most contexts, to be a dirty word. But it is, to say that of someone, is degrading. Someone, someone who's made in the image of God, even if, you know, they might, uh, they might have done something really wicked. And so we've got to be careful with, our, with what comes out of our mouths. Now the person who uses filthy language may well be a believer. James doesn't imply that they're not believers because of this. He just calls them to be done with it. He said, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Now, he may well be implying that it's, you know, a test of your faith to see if it's real, how you, you know, respond to the filthiness and wickedness of your speech. But it is not necessarily indicative of a person not being a believer. Now, it's possible that I'm wrong and that this passage refers to filthy living and rampant wickedness in general and not specifically to speech. Either way, God calls us to put aside all filthiness and any wickedness in our lives. In, in fact, Jesus tells us in this in, the, in regard to this, that we should do whatever it takes, even plucking out an eye or cutting off a hand, in order to, to uh, root these things out of our lives. Then James continues in the second half of verse 21, meekly receiving the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Meekly receiving the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. He just said, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And then he gives an extreme example of both um, being quick to hear and being a person of uh, anger, angry speech. First of all, the example of the angry speech is to put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. And then he turns to the extreme example of listening. He says, receive the, with meekness, the implanted word, which is able to save your soul. So maybe the highest kind of listening, the highest way we should be quick to hear is to hear God's word which is able to save our souls. So let's talk about this receiving with meekness the implanted word. The word James is talking about isn't a word that we're just supposed to listen to or accept or listen to and understand. It's a word which gets planted in you. 
In other words, it, it is given a home in you. You know, we, we talk about how someone, something goes in one ear and out the other. And I, I remember, I'm embarrassed to say this, but I, at times in school, I was the kind of person who crammed all night and got an A on the test and then forgot it just about as fast as I learned it. And, you know, it's, it's easy to have that kind of attitude towards even the things of God, where, where yes, we're there, we're listening, we may have a conversation about it, but we don't give it a home in our hearts. But this word is implanted in you. It's supposed to not only be given a home in your hearts, but then a home where it can grow, where it can be, be, begin to become more than it was when it first got planted in you. Apparently, Jesus, uh, James here hearkens back to his brother, Jesus, remember that uh, James is the brother of Jesus, that his brother Jesus' parable of the sower, where there's where seed falls on different kinds of soil, remember? And James here wants us to be the good soil which welcomes and embraces the seed of God's word so that it can grow up and bear much fruit. Now, we have a number of ways in our society where we hear God's word. We have private ways where we hear God's word. We have corporate ways like being here where we hear God's word. Um, But here the idea goes deeper than merely hearing it. We're to receive it meekly. Now why do you think that the Word of God needs to be received meekly. Well, it's because it says hard things. It says challenging things. It says humbling things. It says things that are contrary to our nature. It says things which could even make us angry. It tells us not to do things we want to do, and it tells us to do things we don't want to do. And we don't like people telling us what to do sometimes. And so, so many people, most people, slough it off or ignore it or even attack it. They don't want to hear it. And in Jesus' parable, remember, three out of the four examples ultimately have no room for the Word of God. But then there are the precious few who do not rebuff the Word but who receive the word meekly. And receiving God's word meekly is more than just listening. Think about it. Think about pondering the word of God, meditating on it, praying through it. This is one of the great disciplines that that deepens the soul to, to... Turn to God's word and pray through it. Pray it into your life. See the things that that are exposed in your life and pray them into your life. And thank God for the things that it reminds you of. And pray for others in the things it reminds you of. Precious gift that God has given us to pray through his word. Search for how it applies to you in your life. 
Be an active listener. Do the work of applying the scriptures to your life. You know, when a, when a sermon is prepared, there's no way that you can... Um, that you have time to give every potential application of a certain scripture. You're dependent on the people in the congregation taking the word and meditating on it and working it into their, to apply into their own lives. Don't wait for it to jump off the page and slap you in the face. Go after it. This is God's word. It's not empty. It's not irrelevant. It's full of precious messages that we need to hear. So dig for it like there's a treasure in there for you. For there is. So what is your attitude toward the word of God? Do you receive it meekly? It has been my privilege now for 40 years or so to preach to so many in this congregation who receive the word of God meekly. And it has made my job a joy. What about you? And then James goes on in verse 22 to say that it's not enough merely to hear the word of God. You've got to put it into practice. You've got to do it. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So it's not enough to listen to God's word, to even to know God's word. He wants us to live out God's word. And when I'm a hearer of the word, but not a doer of the word, I deceive myself. I think I'm doing okay because I'm there in church and I know the Bible. But I'm not okay. And so I'm deceiving myself because I'm not doing it. I'm not working to live out what it says. And one of the things that drags down the church of the Lord is people who come to worship and listen to sermons and go to conferences and read books. But there is unchecked evil running rampant in their lives. They're hearing God's word, but they're not doing it. It may be that no one else knows what's going on. They may think they've got everyone fooled. But the Lord is not fooled. And he is not going to prosper someone who knowingly clings to idols in their lives. James says that the one who hears and does will be blessed in his doing. Implying that the one who doesn't do will not be blessed in it. And so each of us has to ask ourselves the question, am I the person James is talking about here who is a hearer of the word but not a doer? Is the word of God changing my life? Now of course all of us struggle with sins, but is my life being changed by God's word? Am I growing more humble? Am I growing more loving? Am I growing more trusting in the Lord? Am I growing more grateful? Am I fighting to give up my idols? Or am I fighting to protect them? And then, 
James uses an analogy to illustrate how absurd it is to live as one who hears but does not do the word of God. He used the analogy of looking in a mirror. Verses 23 to 25. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer but who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So, we all look at ourselves in the mirror. It's a helpful tool. Does my hair look okay? Is there food on my face? Is there spinach on my tooth? Do I have a bloody nose? Is there hair growing where it shouldn't? And uh, if you're not old enough for that to happen yet, just wait. Has any strange blemish appeared on my face or neck? That's another thing that comes with old age. But what if a person looked, and that's, that's, you know, these are all very important things that we get from looking in a mirror. But what if a person were to look in a mirror and saw something which needed fixing, but as soon as he looked away from the mirror, he forgot about what he saw. He never pulled the egg out of his beard. She never went to get a comb. He never washed the smudge off his face. She never wiped the lipstick off her teeth. He never made a doctor appointment to check out that mole. A person who hears God's word but isn't changed is just like this. He hears God's word but he doesn't do anything in response to what it says. He doesn't make any adjustments. He doesn't repent. He doesn't add something to his prayer list. He doesn't share it with his brothers and sisters and ask them for prayer. He listens to a sermon about loving his wife. And then on the way home from church, instead of apologizing to her because he's realized that he's failed in so many ways to love her as Christ loves his church, he snaps at her because she spent too long talking to a visitor after church. Or he reads Proverbs about the know-it-all. And then he goes out and he acts like one, even in talking about the book of Proverbs. He doesn't like a sermon on giving to the poor because it doesn't fit in with his political views. He's resisted the radical demands of Jesus so long that they no longer impact him or impress him. So the feedback from God's word doesn't help him. It doesn't do him any good. When it comes to the word of God, he is like a Teflon man. God's word is supposed to help us see ourselves, to see what we're like, to see how we need to change. But simply looking in the mirror and seeing it isn't enough. You've got to follow through and make the adjustment which the mirror showed you needed to be made. The word of God isn't just for our enjoyment or curiosity. It's meant to teach me, to open my eyes, to show me who I am and who God is. 
to change me from the inside out. The Word of God is powerful and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. It transforms lives. It revives the soul. It makes wise the simple. It rejoices the heart. It enlightens the eyes, as Psalm 19 tells us. But sometimes, hearts grow calloused and impervious to the Word of God. Calloused hearts are never cut to the quick. They may be interested in the Word of God in an intellectual sense. They may even know the Bible very well. But they never tremble at the Word of God. For them, the Word of God is never like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. As Jeremiah 23, 29 says... Of course, all of us have ways that we are hearers and not doers of God's Word. And this passage is a call to us to not be content with any ways that that's true in our lives. But what James is particularly calling out here is Christians who are impervious to the Word of God. It doesn't matter what the Word says. They have things they like that they will not let go of. They will not give up their idols. They have habits that they will fight. They will not fight to change. They have opinions that they're not willing to reconsider. And now, in the final part of the passage, James contrasts the person who's the hearer but not a doer with a person who is a hearer and a doer of God's word. The hearer doesn't the hearer who doesn't do is like one who looks in a mirror but immediately forgets what he sees, but the hearer who does God's word it says he looks not looks into the mirror but looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres. Being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. In other words, when he looks into the mirror of God's word, he carries what he sees in God's word with him after he walks away from the mirror. His memory of it perseveres. It sticks with him like a seed implanted in his heart and continues to grow and continues to influence him. It's interesting what James calls this person, what this person looks into here. It's not just the word. It's the perfect law, the law of liberty. Why does he go out of his way to refer to it in this sort of embellished way here? Um, Well, first of all, those two really go together. It's not two things, the perfect law and the law of liberty, but it's the perfect law of liberty, the perfect law that gives freedom. In In this letter so far, he's referred to God's word several times. He refers to it in 118 as the word of truth, 121, the implanted word, which we've talked about, 22 and 23, he just refers to it as the word. But here in 125, 
he suddenly refers to it as the perfect law of liberty. Why? Well, he seems to be saying that a person who hears, I'm sorry, he seems to be saying that a person hears and then does God's word because of how he views God's word. He sees it as the perfect law of liberty. And that's what makes the difference. And that suggests that people who hear the word of God, but don't do it, see the word wrongly. They see it maybe as a rule book of how they should be living, but it feels like a burden, not a book of truth that sets us free. As an example, think about a person who struggles to stay within the boundaries of God's law regarding sexuality, as many people do today. Do they view God's laws about sexuality as unfortunate restrictions or as the secret of freedom? Do they view God's laws as prohibiting their freedom? or promoting their freedom. James says that God's law promotes our freedom. But Satan wants to deceive us into thinking that God's law is repressive and contrary to our happiness. The law of Christ is not a set of chains that we have to drag through life like Jacob Marley as some would have us believe. The law of God is just the opposite. It opens up for people the way of freedom, the way of beauty, the way of peace, the way of love. For God loves us. And he gives himself to us. He says, I am the truth. I am the way, the truth, and life. I am the truth, and the truth will set you free. God's word is an expression of his heart for us, an expression of love. But we have an enemy who wants to deceive us and get us thinking wrongly and thinking of it as an unbearable burden that's compromising our happiness and Virtually every time we sin, what we have done is we have believed the lie and not believed Christ. We have believed that some other thing we need for happiness. When all we know when Christ Himself is all we need. And he's given and he has not withheld any good thing from us because he loves us. Now we're coming to the Lord's Supper. And uh, as we do so, uh, it is itself an expression of the love and grace of God and a reminder of what Christ has done for us. It recapitulates how his body was broken and his blood was poured out in love for us. And even the elements themselves 
demonstrate how his death gives us life. For grapes were crushed and grain was crushed in order that we might have life, that we might be strengthened and given life. So as we come to the Lord's Supper, uh, we're, we're uh, called by Christ himself to celebrate the fact that he's coming, the fact that he died, and the fact that one day in the heavenly places, we will be with him and we will feast on him fully. For now, our feast is but a tiny little symbol and glimpse. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word and pray that you would help us to uh, respond to this word this morning even as it itself calls us to, to receive it meekly and not to listen to it and then forget about it. Oh Lord, may this word sink, be received, be welcomed, and flourish in us. We pray now that you would bless us as we come to the table. May we meet Jesus here, O Lord. For that's what every one of us needs most in life, is to meet and know Jesus. We pray in his precious name. Amen.